Randall, the Duke Cunningham, he seemed to have it all. A decorated Navy flying ace, a former instructor at Top Gun, dashing good looks. He was elected to Congress in 1991, and he became a member of the House Defense Appropriations Committee, which meant he got the inside tract into the most lucrative government contracts. And it started small, just dinners, an occasional trip, a few nice gifts. I served my country in Nam, he reasoned. I earned the coveted Navy Cross for valor. Only one, the only pilot to earn that cross in the Vietnam War, that was him. Over 20 years with the Navy as a pilot and then as an instructor. I've paid my dues. He reasoned, I've done my time, and now it's my time to collect. And collect he did. Cash payments under the table, a rent-free yacht, a Rolls-Royce. And by the time it all broke in 2005, he had become the most crooked congressman in history. And he would serve the longest prison sentence of any congress member in history. He's since been released, and interestingly, he chose to settle far from the public eye in Hot Springs, Arkansas. I don't know what that says. I'll make no comment. Only to note that temptations, they're real. Whether they take the form of political kitbacks or whether or not it's an illicit relationship, whether or not it's a swig or a puff or a click, We face temptations every single day, every day. Temptations that could forever change the trajectory of our own lives. So friend, how do you respond in the midst of life's greatest temptations? How should you respond? Well friends, these are the kind of questions that bring us back to our study of 1 Samuel this morning. And yes, We're finally back this morning in 1 Samuel. You know, the Psalms have been wonderfully encouraging. They've been challenging as well uh, in this season when we haven't been able to meet. And yet, we last left off in in Samuel, rather. We left off with David, right? He's got his ragtag band of misfits. And David and his men, right, they're being hotly pursued by Saul and his men. And of course, if you remember the story of of David's life, what we've seen in 1 Samuel, it wasn't always this way, right? That young shepherd boy had been catapulted from obscurity right onto the national stage for killing the mighty Goliath, right? So he marries the king's daughter. He gets that coveted cabinet position on Capitol Hill, and things really start to look up for the shepherd boy from Bethlehem. But Saul, the king, grasping after power, or you've seen how he's gripped by paranoia, he's gripped as well by self-pity, and fearing all of David's newfound popularity. He makes, Saul makes, his administration's top priority to take out the young upstart. And we left chapter 23 with Saul and his men closing in on David, right? David can feel so close, he can feel that noose tightening around his neck. And it's about 
Right? It's about to come to be. Right? He's about to fall into Saul's hands before a sudden last-minute raid by the Philistines forces Saul and his men to turn back and to confront that threat. And David oh so narrowly escapes at the end of 1 Samuel 23. And friends, that brings us to 1 Samuel 24. Let's pick up there and let's read. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. And then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, here is the day. Of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. And then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. And so David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also rose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks you harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father... See the corner of your robe in my hand? For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness. But my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you. And see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. Well, soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice And wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king. And that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. 
Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul, and then Saul went home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. Well, friends, here we have just come to one of the great watershed moments in David's own life. So here he is in the deserts of En Gedi, and he's presented with a temptation. A temptation there in the cave to seize the crown, right? To, to take it from Saul, to take the kingdom for his own. All it requires is that David take one stroke. One stroke, that's it. And there will be no protracted games of cat and mouse No bloody battles where mothers and wives will weep and wail and mourn over the dead. No costly games of attrition that will drag on for years. Just one stroke and with that, game, set, match, and the throne is David's. It all looks so clean, so easy. It's been set up for David on a platter. That's the temptation. And David doesn't take it. And that's because, friends, God's will is that we do his work in his way. I think that's a basic message you can take from 1 Samuel 24. It's that God's will is that we do his work in his way. His will is we do his work in his way. Now listen, one of the dangers of reading the Old Testament, as we've seen in stories with David already, right? We've thought about David and Goliath is how we can sometimes flatly apply Old Testament characters to us, right? Those characters become nothing more than moral examples, right? Dare to be a David. And that is one ditch that we have to avoid. And yet there's also another ditch on the other side that we have to avoid as well. And that is to find no example in some of the stories and characters we find in the Old Testament. Because we do read in 1 Corinthians 10 that many events in the Old Testament occur and were written down as examples for us. 1 Corinthians 10, 6, 1 Corinthians 10, 11, so that we wouldn't succumb to the same temptations and make the same mistakes that they made. And so, friends, as we think about this temptation that David faced there in the cave, the temptation he faced in his own wilderness. I think there's some lessons we ourselves can learn from his life, some lessons we can appropriately right, apply to our own lives. And three lessons in particular I want us to consider this morning. Three lessons. In the face of temptation, lesson one, submit to God. Lesson two, trust in God. Lesson three, wait on God. So in the midst of temptation, I think three lessons we can learn from what we see unfold here. Submit to God, trust in God, wait on God. All right, lesson one, submit to God. Submit to God. So the chapter opens, and Saul's campaign against the Philistines is over. But there's no rest for the weary, no furlough for the troops. Immediately, Saul is bent again on finding David, this obsessive quest to root out David. And hearing of David's whereabouts, we read in verse 2 that Saul takes, what, 3,000 chosen men. 
Once again, David is outnumbered. He's got his, what, 600 misfits, we know from the last chapter. Saul's got 3,000 elites, right, special forces. So we've got five to one odds against David. But don't miss the even deeper irony. Notice how Saul chooses 3,000 of his best men to pursue God's chosen man. Choosing, Saul is 3,000 of his best men to go after God's one chosen man. You know, friends, in the words of the Scottish reformer John Knox, but one man with God is always in the majority. But one man with God is always in the majority. And yet that's the lesson that Saul has yet to learn And here's where the story takes an unexpected twist. It seems Saul's got to take care of some personal business. So he spies a cave to relieve himself. Now, friends, these aren't the kind of details that are typically divulged. Bathroom breaks don't tend to make for riveting drama. But it just so happens that Saul picks the one cave of the many hundreds, if not many thousands of caves here in the wilderness of Engedi, he picks the one where David and his men are secretly hiding. Coincidence? Accident? Not by a long shot. All along the way, right? We thought about this in 1 Samuel 23, if you can think way back to February, all right? end of February, that's where we were in 1 Samuel 23, we saw how God's invisible hand has been guiding the story all along. And now literally and figuratively, Saul is caught with his pants down. He is exposed in every sense of the word. And David's men, they cannot believe their luck. Verse 4, here is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. But friends, just stop there for a moment. Is that in fact what the Lord said? Is that what the Lord promised? Any of you who read over this passage this week in anticipation, did you just run right over that and be like, yeah, that sounds right? Or did you stop and say, actually, is that really what the Lord said? Because to be clear, that's actually not exactly what the Lord said. It's close to what he said. It's nearly right, but it's not right. He said in the previous chapter, I will give the Philistines, I'll give the Philistines into your hand, back in 23.4. But you know, hey, listen, why quibble with words, right? Saul has shown himself to be no better than a Philistine. Surely, David, this now must be God's will, And do you see what's just happened right there? Subtly, almost imperceptibly, they've twisted what God said ever so slightly to make it what they want God to say, what they want him to say. And friends, that happens all the time. We'll quote quote Ecclesiastes 3.12. I know there is nothing better for people than to be happy, and to enjoy the good life we read. And thus, people will quote, and they'll say, see, God wants me to be happy. And this marriage, this marriage I'm in, isn't making me happy. 
And so we reason it's okay to walk away. Or we'll come across Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. You see, God makes no distinctions between men and women, whether in the home or in the church. If he doesn't make any distinctions, why should we? Why should we? Women ought to be pastors as well. And so we reason. Or we look at even David. We look at his own life. We'll go to 2 Samuel 1, where we read of David's love for Jonathan, a love that was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. You see right there, the Bible affirms same-sex attraction. It's not wrong. David had that kind of relationship himself with Jonathan. We see it right here. Friends, we could keep going. But what makes all of these turns so deceptive is there's always a bit of truth mixed in with the error. And so it sounds right, at least partly right, and it's so easy to be deceived. So friend, beware. For if you want something bad enough, if you want it bad enough, you'll be tempted to, just, to justify your actions by, by similarly misquoting or by subtly misapplying the Bible. You'll twist God's word to make it say what you want it to say. And friends, that's always the first step in but a few steps until you eventually won't care what he has to say. And it seems David himself, he was at first persuaded. For we read verse 4 that David arose stealthily, right, silently, sword unsheathed, he creeps up in the darkness upon Saul. Literally, there is the kingdom, again, laid bare awkwardly before him, and all he has to do is strike, and it would all be over. So easy, so little bloodshed. And you can imagine in this moment David thinking of the now years that he has been on the run, of the swollen feet the sleepless nights, the constant pangs of hunger, the wife that he's lost, it was given him, lost and given then to another. Every relationship that David has held dear has been torn from him by Saul. Why not tear the throne from this tyrant? So easy for David to reason like that. And who would blame him? Who would fault him? After what Saul had done to the priests at Nob, you remember when he struck them all down? After what he's done, men would celebrate David. Saul's own men, no doubt, they would look to him again as a national hero as they did in the days of Goliath. Right? He just delivered the city of Keilah again. It would only seem right for David to take this action. And then, of course, you've got what David's men behind him and they're whispering, right, don't delay. He's an imposter Finish him off. It's your time. You've paid your dues. Friends, his men, you know, they may have been singing them themselves. You know the old song? This is the day. This is the day that the Lord has made. Probably singing that as David's there. Probably a little better, but we won't comment on that. But you see right there, there's David's temptation. To take the kingdom by force. And that temptation must have been enormous. 
given what he had suffered, given the men behind him and the evil of the man before him, it must have been huge. And so we read David rose and he crept into the blackness and he stealthily cut off Saul's head like Goliath's? No. A corner of Saul's robe. That's what he cuts off. Are you kidding me? Like you've become to decide to become a tailor or something along the way. Like what is happening in a corner of Saul's robe? And friends, not only are David's men confounded by this act, they're deeply confused. David himself is also contrite. He's convicted by what he's done. Verse 5, afterward David's heart struck him. Verse 6, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. And friends, this may confuse us, as it no doubt probably confused as many of David's own men. For what grave sin has David just committed? Right, The hem of a robe, a tailor for a moment. What's the big deal? You know, friends, the robe, as we've seen in 1 Samuel, It's a sign of kingly authority. It signified kingly authority. Back in chapter 15, when Saul grasps after Samuel's robe and tears it, you remember what Samuel says to Saul, so your kingdom will be torn from you, there in 1528. Or back in in chapter 18.4, when Saul's son Jonathan, what did he do? He gave his robe to David as a sign that he was giving the kingdom to him. He was giving his right to the kingdom, passing that on to David. And so in cutting the corner of Saul's robe, David is symbolically staking his claim to be the rightful king. And twice we're told that the challenge there was that this king, Saul, for all he was, he was still the Lord's anointed And so David is conscience-stricken because Saul still is the king, and God has placed him there. And that is not by accident that we're told twice he is the Lord's anointed, because it's to underscore that it is not David's place. It's not his place to take matters into his own hand and claim the kingdom for his own. David understands this apparently small but highly symbolic act of tearing Saul's robe was in fact its own act of rebellion against God. He understands that he must not grasp for it. God himself must choose to give it. God must choose to give it. You know, my Christian friend, in the midst of temptation, you must submit yourself fully to God's word and his will. You cannot make the mistake of David's men, who mistook an open door. They mistook this open door for proof of God's will. And that, friends, is so easy to do. It's so easy to conflate God's own will with our own wills, right? That business opportunity that just drops into your lap. Yeah, it's a bit shady, but listen, you've been praying for financial assistance. The Lord knows your prayers. He's heard your prayers, and look, Look at this opportunity he's just dropped into your lap, right? It must be a God thing. So we reason and we justify. Or that relationship, right? I like her, she likes me. We 
enjoy the same things. I've been praying for, for some joy in my own marriage, in my own life. I've been praying for change. And look what the Lord has done. Look who he's put before me. Look who he's brought into my life. And so, again, we justify and we mistake our wills for God's will. But friends, God's will will never lead you to disobey God's word. If it does, it is simply not God's will. Period. So in the midst of temptation, submit yourself to God's will by submitting yourself to his word. But friends, for our second lesson, and these next two will be a little bit shorter, all right? In temptation, we're not only to submit to God, we're also to, secondly, we're to trust in God. We are to trust in God. You know, it's interesting how much of, of this chapter is actually told through speeches. There's very little drama. The drama's already passed. Most of the chapter told through speeches. David has been introduced right, to Saul in chapter 16 as a man who is prudent in speech. And we're going to see David's life is about to depend on his next speech. For he does the thing of what? The risky thing of stepping out into the open with a dead-end cave behind him as the only means of escape, and he now announces his presence to Saul with his 3,000 men not far behind. Humanly speaking, this is the most foolish thing David could have possibly done. But friends, that action and the speech that's about to follow will reflect David's trust in God. Because notice how it begins in verse 8. With David bowing his face to the ground before Saul, rather than striking Saul to the ground, David prostrates himself to the ground, not what we would expect. Why bow before the bully, right? Before this crazed despot, why this act? Well, friends, David is seen clearly once again. Right? The clouds of temptation have somewhat passed now. He knows that Saul is still God's king. And so he shows reverence for the office out of reverence for God. Friends, it always ought to be the same with us. It ought to be the same with us, whether or not we're talking about an office in the church, whether or not we're talking about an office in government. We are called to respect those in office out of our respect for God. That's where that respect generates, out of respect toward God. Because all authorities that exist, Romans 13, have been instituted by God. Friends, you may not like those authorities, but if David could bow to that authority before him, we can respect the authorities that God has given to us. And notice what David says in verse 9. Why do you listen to the words of men? Notice David doesn't open in the speech by directly accusing Saul. He suggests first that Saul is ill-informed. That Saul has been ill-advised along the way. Perhaps to provide an opportunity for Saul to maybe save face before his men. Right? Even in this, David's a wonderful example of Proverbs 15.1. A gentle answer turns away anger. Right? But a harsh word stirs up wrath. But even notice more the contrast. Saul, David says, has been listening to the words of men. And yet... What did David do? Verse 10, explicitly not listen to the words of men. Some told me, he notes, recalling that moment just back in the cave, some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I did not listen to the words of my counselors, to the words of men. Friends, that is always our risk. 
in this life, that is always our risk, that we would turn our ears not to God's word, but to the words of men. My Christian friend, the words of men will always lead you astray. Friend, the word of God will never do that. The word of God will never lead you astray. But if you shut yourself to God's word, if you close yourself to it, either by literally closing that word and keeping it closed in your life, or by closing yourself off from godly counselors, or by closing yourself off from a faithful word-centered church, you may one day find yourself very much like Saul, shut out from God himself, unable to hear God's own voice, prone to the words of men, to be led astray by them. And yet again, in David's trust in God, that trust in God is evidenced again by his trust in his word. So what does he do? David holds up the corner of Saul's robe, and in effect, he says, listen, I declined, holding up the corner of the robe, I declined to take your life. Though what have you been doing but spending years trying to take my life? I could have taken it, I didn't, and yet you've been spending years trying to take mine implication without cause. Right, so that's why he says, may the Lord judge between me and you. Verse 12, and may the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. You know, he's quoting from Deuteronomy 32, 35 there. What the Apostle Paul quotes later in Romans 12 that Michael Gaddy read earlier to us, right? Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You know, we all know that expression, right? Don't get mad, get even. We know that expression. And there's a part of us that really resonates with that expression because we too have this innate desire to see justice done. It appeals to our sense of justice. You know, we thought about this some we were in Psalm 94. In Psalm 94, it's why we're drawn to characters. We thought about some of those characters, characters like Frank Castle. Right? You think of some of the movies. You think of Denzel Washington and like The Equalizer, whatever that guy is. Or you, you think of Liam Neeson and Taken. Right? Those who, in the midst of great evil, when those who are marginalized and who are oppressed, when they are being oppressed, when evil is being done to them, these characters rise up and they deliver them. They see, they see justice take place, so to speak, usually with a few car chases and for good measure. Point being, we get it, right? We get the appeal for justice. But here's the thing. Friend, if there is no God, if there is no God, then that's what we're left to do. It's what we have to do, to take matters into our own hands. And what we're left with is vigilante justice, which, if we're not careful, really becomes no justice at all. And yet as tempting as that must have been for David, David knows there is, in fact, a God behind all that is happening. Right? Verse 10, David knew that incident in the cave, that was not accident, that was not fate, if you will. That was, as he says, it was the Lord, the Lord who gave you today into my hand. Though David doesn't know why this is all happening the way it is, he does know who is behind it. He knows this is the Lord's own hand at work. And so David continues to trust God by leaving the outcome to God. You see how he's doing it? He's trusting God in these verses by leaving the outcome to God. My Christian friend, does that describe you? 
would that describe you? If you've, if you've been wronged, if you've been hurt by another, you know, it's only right to, to approach the person, to, to confront them, to talk with them, to expose the issue, to try to seek reconciliation. If it's criminal, it's appropriate to go to the authorities. But friends, there will be times in this life when you will be wronged and you will exhaust all your avenues of recourse and it won't have been made right. And there won't finally be reconciliation. Friends, then what will you do? You'll be racked by bitterness. You'll go all dirty hairy on that person or something. You know, if not an action in words. Friend, the Bible would call you to trust in the Lord by turning it over to the Lord. To trust in him by turning it over to him. Because he is the one who will make it right. He is the one who avenges, who deals with the wrongdoer. Friend, David won't succumb to that kind of contemporary wisdom, right? He won't listen to the words of men. He won't assume, right, the ends justify the means. He doesn't take that approach. It's why he quotes that ancient proverb in verse 13. Because doing wickedness makes one wicked, No matter how justified you feel, it doesn't matter. If you do wickedness, it makes you wicked, and you can't justify it. That's what David's saying, which is why he trusts in the Lord by turning it over to the Lord. Yet in the midst of that temptation, not only does he submit to God, does he trust in God, but thirdly, notice David waits on God. He waits on God. And it looks like David's speech has the desired result. Because as soon as he finishes, how does Saul address David? My son, David. If you can think back to this series in 1 Samuel, how has Saul been addressing David? The son of Jesse. Right, dismissively, won't even mention him by name. Just refers to him pejoratively as that son of Jesse. And yet it seems David's words have now struck Saul right between the eyes. Now he's my son, David, Saul says. He even proceeds, what does he do? He weeps loudly in verse 16. He goes on to profess David's righteousness in verses 17 and 18. He even admits that the kingdom is no doubt going to be taken one day from him and given to David in verse 20. And it all looks so promising, right? The tears, the evident sorrow, were tempted to hold Saul up as a man who's been restored. He's confessed his sin. He's seen the light. He's a changed man. Friends, what do you think? What do you think? Look again at that confession in verse 17. Saul says, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. You notice what Saul's doing right there? He's playing the comparative righteousness game. Notice how he laments David is more righteous He doesn't lament his utter lack of righteousness. He notes David's more righteous, but he doesn't lament his own utter lack of righteousness. There's no sense in these verses that Saul sees his offense against God. David, yes, against God, far less clear. He's like the Pharisee who will be quick to compare himself to others and not like the tax collector who what beats his breast and says, rather, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Friend, if you're listening this morning and you are not a Christian or you're not sure if you're a Christian, 
Friends, know that your hope can never be that you're comparatively more righteous than someone else. Friends, God is a holy God. He is a holy God, which means God's standard is perfect, and justly so. And every one of us fails to meet it. When we stand before him, we can't say, see, I was a little bit better than that guy. No, friends, that's why Jesus came. Because God is a holy God, and his standard is rightly perfect, and none of us can meet it. David failed to meet it. None of us can meet it, which is why he sent his son, Jesus Christ, into this world to perfectly meet that standard, to fulfill the righteousness that you and I cannot fulfill on our own, and then to die for unrighteous people like you and me on the cross, and then to be raised again from the grave, risen to newness of life, as proof that God had accepted that sacrifice so that all those who see that they don't have near the righteousness God needs, that they are, their best righteousness is but filthy rags, nothing to offer at the end, and they flee to Christ, they look to Christ, they clothe themselves with his righteousness by repenting of their sins and trusting alone in him, those can be forgiven, those can be restored to God, they can be made whole with God. Friends, that's the good news of the gospel. And it's not a comparative gospel, right? It's that Jesus has done it from beginning to end. If that is not the gospel that you have believed and placed your hope in, friends, you can do that. You don't have to come forward. You can repent of your sin right now, wherever you are, and place your faith in Christ. And I would implore you to do it. And then talk with one of us. Email the church. Contact a friend. Let us help you then see what it would be like to follow Christ in faith. But member of UBC, there are going to be times, you know, as a church, when we actually have to assess whether or not someone is truly repentant. You know, if we're thinking about a case of church discipline, for example, where the church is required to assess the repentance of somebody. Friends, we can never mistake tears for genuine repentance. You know, one can feel sorrow over sin with no genuine conviction over that sin. Those things aren't the same, you realize, sorrow and genuine conviction. It's why Paul in 2 Corinthians 7 talks about a worldly sorrow that leads to death because it doesn't result in any change versus a godly sorrow that does lead to change and leads to newness of life. Friend, how do you tell the difference between those two? It often, it's hard. And that's because often the fruit of genuine repentance can only be witnessed over time. Over time. So we should be grateful for professions of repentance, but when there is an established pattern of sin, the wise person waits. Time will tell. And sadly, we've seen these patterns with Saul before, haven't we? And we're going to see again that the tears will pass, and Saul is soon going to grab for that familiar spear, and he's going to hunt David again. He's going to return to those same murderous ways. And so we close with Saul heading home, right, to his nice chateau, right? That's where where Saul's headed. David going back to the confines of a cave. And that's where chapter 24 ends. David waiting. He had his golden opportunity. He didn't take it. And he's left now waiting. Saul knows the kingdom's David. Is David's. And yet, 
Saul is not about to turn it over. Saul seems to live, like many of us sometimes do, in some imaginary world where he thinks that he can still have his own way and somehow it might end well. He can keep the throne. And David keeps waiting. You know, there's one thing I've grown to love over the last number of years, and that is this wonderful invention called a DVR. A DVR, where you can record your favorite shows or favorite sporting events. Remember those things when people used to gather in big stadiums and yell and scream and cheer for their sports teams? And we haven't had one of those in a while. Maybe we'll have one again in like 2022. I don't know. But with those events, when you got a DVR, you can record the whole thing, and then what can you do when the commercials come and when all the boring commentary comes? You just hit fast forward. You just skip ahead. Friends, how tempting that must have been for David. There in the cave, with the opportunity of a lifetime, he could have just hit that fast-forward button. He could have skipped that life of suffering. He could have then jumped right ahead to the throne. And who would have blamed him? Friends, it's the same with us so often. What do we want to do? We want to hit the fast-forward button, don't we? We want to skip ahead. We don't want to wait. We don't want to submit. We don't want to keep trusting and then keep waiting. We just want to hit fast forward and move on to the good stuff, to the glorious stuff. But friend, what David needed to realize, what he needed to learn, what we need to learn so often is that there are some lessons that can only be learned through trial and suffering. There are just some lessons that are only learned through trial and suffering. There are good things that God means to teach us that we can learn no other way. And so we submit to God, and we trust in God, and we wait on God. And friends, I think as much though as those lessons are meant for us, they are finally actually meant to point to one beyond us. You know, there would be another. There would be another who would come. And like David, this one's path to the throne would not be quick. And it would not be easy. His path to the throne would also be fraught with difficulty. Like David, his very own would turn on him. And they too would seek his own life. And he too would have his own wilderness temptation. All this I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. You see right there like David? Jesus was offered the crown without the cross. And such is Satan's way to offer that crown without the cross. Only unlike David, the better David, he didn't even stumble. The temptation he passed flawlessly, perfectly, as he submitted to the will of his Father, as he trusted him, and as he waited on him. Jesus understood that God's will is to do his work in his way, and so receive the reward. And friends, because he refused to receive the crown apart from the cross, we can receive that crown. It can be ours, which is why we submit to him and we trust in him and we wait on him. Let's pray. 
God, we give you praise that you are gracious and long-suffering with us. We give you praise that in the midst of our temptations, some of which by your grace, we call upon the promises of your word. Lord, and we, we make it through. And there are times when we stumble and we fall flat on our face and have made a mess of ourselves. And yet, God, we look to Christ and know that our righteousness is there. And in him we have perfect and everlasting hope. And we pray this in his name. Amen.